Father, as we now look at your word. God, I pray that, Lord, our hearts are open as we worship you. So, God, our hearts are ready to receive your word. Lord, would we not, not shut it up now, not shut up our hearts, not close off, Lord, not get distracted, not fall asleep, Lord. Because, Lord, that's so lame when we think about your word that's been spoken into our lives. Lord God, we want to be hungry and eager and open and awake to listen and to grow. That's what we want. We want to be known for people who have a heart after God. And Lord, people who have a heart after God love your word. David says, I love the law. I meditate on it day and night. Lord, that's what it means to love you. We love your word and we love what you're about. So Lord, speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats, everyone? Thank you. Thanks, guys. Wow. God's doing loads of stuff. It's exciting, isn't it? Amazing. And, um, you know, this whole uh, theme, this whole subject based on, uh, on the life of David and what he was known for was to be a man after God's own heart. And you can't look at David without looking at the heart. And I only know that the word heart comes up in so much of our vocabulary, doesn't it? It comes up in so many of our uh, sentences and things that we say. So we say, I love you with all my you know, we say about, you know, oh, he really gave his heart to that. You know, and the English footballers, no talent, but lots of heart. That's what we've heard on some of the pundits have been saying, really good stuff. And, um, you know, something like, you know, we might say, she died of a broken heart. And for those of you that are a little bit older, I left my heart in San Francisco. Younger people, I haven't got a clue what's going on there. Totally. But I want to make a statement to you, and I want to develop this statement over the next 30 minutes or so. And this is the statement, the condition of our heart will determine the spiritual quality of our life. The condition of our heart will determine the spiritual quality of our life. Not how much you know, not whether you've studied or not, not whether you come from a long line of uh, you know, really powerful Christians and you've got family tradition behind you. None of that will determine your spiritual life. What will determine your spiritual life will be the condition of your heart. And what we're going to do to try and open up this series, I get to introduce these series, so I do all the introduction type stuff. So we're going to look at some history, we're going to look at some biology, and then we're going to look at some theology. So is that all right? Are you all okay with that? So we're going to look at history first. So I want you to imagine that this bit over here stands for Egypt. So for 400 years, the children of Israel, the nation that says that they believe in God, that they, they love God with all their heart and their soul and their strength, they are in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. Moses okay, comes along as a leader, leads them out. Imagine this is the Red Sea. They come out of the Red Sea, out of slavery, into freedom, but then they're stuck in the wilderness for nearly 40 years. It should have taken 11 days, but they were stuck in the wilderness for nearly 40 years because their hearts kept going away from God. God kept trying to get a hold of their hearts and their hearts kept wriggling away. And Moses tried to lead them through all of that. And then eventually Moses kind of lost it a little bit himself. He went to be with God in heaven. And then another leader called Joshua comes, leads them through the Jordan into the promised land. See, to be in the band is the promised land, isn't it? Unless it all goes wrong technically like I did this morning. But that, that stands for the promised land. Now, this is not just a geography field trip that God is taking the children of Israel on. You see, the goal here is not destination. The goal here is transformation. What God wanted was to get them out of slavery and to get their hearts so set free and Jesus and God, rather, to be their Lord and their Savior that their whole lives would be built around love of God. 
That's the promised land. But then when we get into the promised land, Joshua, who's the king here, and kind of the ruler here anyway, at the end of his time, when he's about to pop his clogs and go to be with God in heaven, he says, now listen guys, we, he's brought you, God has brought you all the way out of Egypt, all the way to the wilderness, to the promised land. We're meant to live here with God as our king. Let's get our hearts fully committed to this. Choose who you're going to serve. Get your heart fully committed to this. And then he calls them to do that, then he dies. And then in the next book, the book of Judges, we read this amazing sentence where it said this, In the days of the judges, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. There's still a heart problem, isn't there? There's still a heart problem. And so, and then there's a whole cycle of what happens in the book of Judges. It's like this. They're at rest and everything's good. Then their hearts get rebellious. Then God brings retribution, often through an enemy like the Midianites or the Amalekites or the Stalactites or whatever else they are. And they all come And then the children of Israel get on their knees and get all repentant and cry out to God. And God sends a rescuer. So it goes rest, rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue. And they're back at rest again. Some of the rescues were people that you've heard of like Gideon and like Samson and like Deborah. Others that you haven't heard of like Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. All these characters were judges. Then at the end of the judges we get into the book of Samuel. And then there's an amazing verse as well. God, with a broken heart, I believe. He says in 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, They have rejected me. This is what God says. That I should reign over them. In other words, all the way along, my desire was that they would be a people and I would be their God. And they would be in right relationship with me. But they've rejected me that I should reign over them. They're still looking for a a, a man. They're still looking for a leader. And then God relented and gave them a leader. And that leader was called Saul. And so his prophet at the time, Samuel, anointed Saul as the king of Israel. And into that historical context, the young shepherd boy called David begins to emerge. Now all of that is a lot of the Bible and over a lot of years, all right, that you've just heard in three minutes. But that's a little bit of historical context to the life of David. It's really important because David is to become the greatest king that Israel's ever known, a man after God's own heart, but also through David's lineage becomes Jesus Christ. David is a picture, a shadow, a type of Jesus. We want to, have a man, we want to be like David with men and women with, after God's own heart. So that's a bit of history. How about a little bit of biology this morning? Take a look at the screen. The heart is the life source of the human body. This small muscle weighing less than an apple and about the size of your fist pumps 1.3 gallons of blood through your body at 72 beats a minute. This one little muscle determines life and death. If you have a heartbeat, you are alive. And if you don't, well, you can't survive without it. People can survive without eyesight, hearing, limbs, but you can't survive without a heart. When searching for life, you seek a pulse, a pounding through a person's veins that originates from the heart. The heartbeat signifies life, and where there is no heartbeat, there is no life. You're all checking your pulse now, aren't you? (laughs) So a little bit of biology, we understand the heart is a muscle in the body that pumps blood around our body. But why is it that God seems so obsessed with the heart? So we've had a little bit of history, a little bit of biology, but the theology is that the heart in the scripture is a metaphor 
for what God really wants to say. It's a metaphor. And if you know what a metaphor or a simile is, then you'll appreciate some of these. These are some actual exam questions. You know, our, our young people are about to go into exam season, or they already are in exam season. We want to pray for them, whether they're doing GCSEs or A-levels or, or university stuff as well. Really pray for them. But here's some actual examples, or, or some actual answers, rather, uh, from, so, uh, in some kind of English uh, uh, you know, exams. This is one. This is all about metaphors. Her vocabulary vocabulary was as bad as like whatever. That's what it is really there. Okay, that's good. Good English. Here's another one. The young fighter had a hungry look, the kind you get from not eating for a while. Or I like this one. He was as lame as a duck. Not the metaphorical lame duck either, but a real duck that was actually lame. Maybe from stepping on a landmine or something. (laughs) And then here's a romantic one. He was deeply in love. When she spoke, he thought he heard bells as if she were a dust cart reversing. (laughs) Great, great. Going to go a long way there, son. (laughs) Here's another one. She grew on him like she was a colony of E. coli. (laughs) And he was room temperature beef. So kind of metaphors, but, but when God talks about the heart, and there's hundreds and hundreds of references in the Bible, it's a metaphor. He's not talking about your literal physical heart, that muscle that pumps blood around your body. He's not talking about that. And a really important verse in Proverbs 4, verse 30, uh, 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Other translations put it like this. Keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. I want to suggest to you this morning that the most important thing we can do in our spiritual lives is to guard our heart. Because everything else the Bible says flows out of that. If you don't guard your heart, then the course and the quality and even the end of your spiritual life will be shaped by that. Because everything flows out of your heart. Here's a great definition of what God is getting at with this metaphor of the heart. Heart is used in scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. It is the part of our being where we desire, deliberate and decide. The place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. The comprehensive term for a person as a whole. Feelings, desires, passions, thoughts, understanding and will. It is the epicenter of a person. The place to which God turns. That amazing quote, a guy called Joe Stoll. So in other words, the heart is a metaphor which sums up the very essence of who we are as people. And there's so much in this whole thing. And I think when you look at Saul, okay, before the, 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 the king that I spoke about in the beginning of Samuel. When you look at Saul, you can see a few things about the heart. And these are, if you like, foundational principles that we're going to build on over the next few weeks. So we see how God deals with his heart by the way he dealt with Saul's heart. Number one, God examines our hearts. It says in 1 Samuel 9 verse 19, Samuel replied, go up ahead of me to the high place for today you are to eat with me and in the morning I will let you go and I will tell you all that is in your heart. So, so I want you to listen to this, it's really important. The next six weeks, God wants to examine our hearts. Now, if you're a person that says, actually, I'm all right, there's nothing wrong in my heart, can I say, you're in trouble. Spiritually, you're in trouble. Because the Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. I've sat with enough people in my office to know over the years that the heart is deceitful above all things. So many believers who we get ourselves so deceived by our heart. There's nothing wrong with me. It's not me. I didn't. So much. But I also know that it's true by looking in the mirror. 
at so many times when my heart is deceitful above all things as well. So if you're open to it, and if you have a heart after God, then you're going to be saying at the end of this morning, God, over the next six weeks, examine my heart. You're going to pray the David prayer. Two words, search me. Search me. Put the spotlight of your Holy Spirit into my heart. If there's anything in my heart that needs dealing with, that needs changing, that needs encouraging, that needs strengthening, whatever it is, Lord, would you examine my heart? Secondly, God touches our hearts. 1 Samuel 10 verse 26, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. How many of you have ever had your heart touched by God? You know it's an amazing thing. I want to tell you, God loves touching human hearts. So over the next six weeks, as the guys take us through this series, as we work through that together, be open every week. You know, as you're in your life group, when you're looking in the scriptures yourself in the week, when you're at work, when you're at college, when you're at uni, be open. Say, God, examine my heart, but then God, touch my heart. But even more than that, God changes our hearts. 1 Samuel 10 verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. That's brilliant. God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. See, God doesn't want to just touch our heart. Many of us have been touched by God. God wants to change our hearts. The children of Israel on their journey from slavery to the promised land were touched by God many times but were very rarely changed. But it's when God gets a hold of our heart and when we let God get a hold of our heart and we get a hold of God in such a way that not only does he examine our hearts, not only does he touch our hearts, but by his power he changes our hearts. That's amazing. The Bible says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh instead of that heart of stone you've got. That's not a one-off thing. That's an ongoing process. You see, in the early days, Saul's heart was in really good shape. But the problem is, over time, his heart deteriorated. Because you see, the condition of our heart will determine the quality of our spiritual life. And for Paul, there were two key issues. For Paul, for Saul, there were two key issues. Number one, dependence. You see, in 1 Samuel 13, God told uh, Saul to, to, to wait, uh, to wait for, for a period of time and to wait until something happened. And he, and he waited and then he got impatient. And he thought, I'm not going to wait any longer. I know what God said, but I'm going to do it my way. And he went because he was independent. And independence is a heart condition where you actually say, do you know, I know better than you, God. I'm going to do it my own way. And it's tragic in my mind to see so many Christians, uh, you know, these days who have got an independent spirit. I don't want to kind of settle in with any church, you know, not about authority, submission, any of those biblical things, because actually we're independent because I know better. It's a heart condition. And the condition of your heart will determine the spiritual quality of your life. Secondly, there's also an obedience issue. It's in 1 Samuel 15, God told Saul to do something and he only did part of it. And when God came along and realized that he'd only done part of it and not the whole of it, he said these amazing words, to obey is better than sacrifice because you've rejected the word of the Lord then he has rejected you as king. So, so because Saul's heart began to deteriorate, because he was independent and because he was disobedient, his heart began to deteriorate. And then God said, I'm going to need to reject you and I'm going to need to choose somebody else. And into that backdrop, we see this young shepherd boy called David. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to read this together. Well, I'll read it and you can follow it if you've got a Bible. So the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. 
The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. That was because Samuel had a bit of a fearsome reputation and other things that went on before that. They asked, do you come in peace? Okay, because he wasn't particularly a peaceful prophet at times. Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So then when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, that's the eldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He's the eldest, he's a tall guy, he's muscular, he's a fighter, he's a soldier, surely he's the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on on the things man looks at, and we can say this all together now, can't we? Let's say it together. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been David, knowing that the man of God has turned up at the house and all your brothers are all in their you know, paraphernalia and their best stuff, their Gucci and whatever, do you know what I mean, their Armani, and actually there's something really special going on here and you're not even invited. You're not even invited to the living room, let alone to the lineup. You're stuck in the fields with the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. And it wasn't that David was a bad looking young guy. On the outward, it says, he uses this really old word. He was ruddy. We don't use that word very much now, do we? He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. I love this story. It's an amazing story. And I want you to just try and picture this, okay? Here's all the guys lined up, okay? The brothers, and then David comes into that mix, and, uh, and God says, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And you know, we look at that phrase as being quite a negative phrase, almost to say, well, man looks at the outward appearance, so that doesn't matter. God looks at the heart. I don't think it really means that. Let me try and illustrate it for you. Um, I got into a TV program a few months ago called The Voice. Anyone watch The Voice? Any fans of The Voice in the house? Okay, three of you that will admit it. But judging on Facebook, the rest of you are fibbing. Okay, so just leave that there. So I really liked it because I was really fed up with all these talent shows. But this one seemed really different to me because the four judges sat with their backs uh, to, to the contestants. And all they did was they heard The Voice. So they didn't look at them, so they couldn't see whether they were fat or thin or old or young or trendy or untrendy. And it was all about the voice. It wasn't about the outward appearance. And if they liked the voice, they hit the button, span round, and there they were. And I loved it. I was going really well. And I kept saying to Alison, this is really good. This is really good. She got really fed up of it. And then as it got towards the end, or towards the kind of three quarters in the end, I thought, this is just like all the others. Because actually, as it got towards the end, to me, in my humble opinion, some of the better singers were voted out. And actually, it was the trendy, cool-looking people that got in the end. Mostly. Mostly. And it was like this whole thing, because man looks at the outward appearance. And I think sometimes when we look at that verse, we tend to think that man shouldn't, but man does. 
So you can look at it as a negative, but actually it's a statement of fact. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the law looks at the heart. So, if you're a believer, it matters how you dress. Not that you wear Gucci and Armani, but that you dress appropriately in a way that honours Christ. And for our young people, I'm going to say, especially girls, but not only girls, it's a really big issue. You might think, well, hang on a minute, the law looks at the heart. Yeah, but man looks at the outward appearance. When you dress a certain way, it conveys a certain message. And the Bible says that we should honour God in speech, in life, and in purity. And that, and that I, sorry, humbly I want to suggest to you, that can in- include the way that we dress. Now, now, Lord looks at the heart, yes, he does, but man looks at the outward appearance, and that's important. But it's not as important as the fact the Lord looks at the heart. Are you with me? Does that make sense? I just wanted to make that point because I think that's really, really important. And because man does look at the outward appearance, and God does look at the heart... Okay, that's the primary focus that God's after, is the heart. And all the outward will come out of that, not the other way around. So before we look at what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart, I want to ask a question this morning. What does it mean to be a man? How many of you are a man and you know it? Okay, how many of you are a man and you don't? No, no. Okay, now because I think when you get into the whole men's thing, and I know we've got like CVM weekend coming up, and we've got men's ministry on, which is great, and I love all that, it's brilliant. But there are some dangers, okay, in that whole thing, the same as I think there are for women as well. Because we can get sucked into the stereotypes of what men are meant to be. So, I'm going to give you six stereotypes of manhood this morning, and you're going to tell me which one you think is a real man. So, is it number one, macho man? Here's a photograph I did earlier. And... Um, <laughs> Is is this the stereotype? Is this a real man? He's macho man, he's tough, he's a fighter, he definitely does not cry, ever. Or is it power man? He's wealthy, he's powerful, he's influential, he's a leader, people respect him. Or is it, this is mine, is it worker man? He's practical, (laughs) DIY, okay? I mean, he can just do everything, practical. Is that what real manhood is? Are you a real man if you know how to put up shelves? I don't. Are you a real man? Is that what being a real man means? Is it love a man? So, you know, basically, that's what real manhood is. He is a gift to the ladies. They just love it. That's what a real man is about. He's love a man. Or is he poet man? I can't believe my phone is actually going off. That's, uh, you need to take that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, is, is, it, is it poet man? In other words, he can describe in words flowers. And sunsets and lambs in, in fields and all pretty things like that. Is, that. is that what a real man is? Or is it songwriter man? That just the words he puts to music just melt the hearts, especially of the ladies. Which one of those stereotypes is a real man? Can I tell you, David was every one of those. David was a macho man because he was a fighter. You're going to see, Simon's going to look at this next week, David and Goliath. He was a fighter. There was a lot of blood he spilt in his life. He was a fighter. He was a macho man. He was also a power man. He became the king, the greatest king in Israel's history. Okay? He was power man. He had influence and respect. But he was also a worker man because he was practical and he looked after the sheep. He was a blue-collar worker for many years. He could put up shelves. But he was also a lover man, a little bit too much at times. And he was poet and songwriter man. Because he composed some of the greatest songs and psalms and poetry that's ever been written on planet earth. So the reason I'm saying this to you guys is please do not get sucked in 
to the stereotypes that you have to be a certain kind of man for God to say you're a man after God's own heart. You may be one of those six stereotypes. You may be two, you may be three, you may be none of them. God will say to you, what's more important is what's in your heart, boy. And you might say, yeah, but I'm a man, but I don't like football. That's all right. It's really all right. Yeah, but I'm a man, but I like poetry. That's fine. Please fight against this kind of, and I think it comes from men as much as it comes from women, that we all men have to be the same kind of thing. And so we don't do our emotions and we all grunt and we do this and we do that. That's rubbish. What God looks at is your heart. Whether you're a macho man or a lover man or a poet man or a worker man or a mix of all those, what God looks at more than anything else is your heart. Do I hear an amen? And God looked at David and he saw a man after his own heart. And that was so, so important. You see, the condition of our heart will determine the spiritual quality of our life. And so what David does, or what what happens to David, is David's then anointed into leadership. Now, I just want to pause in the David story, because I need to announce and tell you something as a church this morning. So I know you'll all listen up now. Um, This church is led by Jesus, uh, but led uh, in terms of people by a group of people called the elders. Now, that's not like a, because they're old or because they sit around in a teepee and, and all that kind of stuff. It can feel like that. It's not that. It's a biblical term from the New Testament. And they're men and women who have got gifts of leadership and eldership, pastoral, overseeing gifts. And it's not because they're necessarily great on stage. You often won't see many of the elders, although you'll see some. Lee's an elder, you'll see myself and Dan. But often you won't because actually their leadership, primarily the elders, is not a seen thing. It's an unseen thing, but their fingerprints are all over the church. And they lead often in private rooms and, and late at night and when you don't see it. And they're an amazing bunch of men and women leaders in this church. And we've had some amazing elders in the past as well. And we believe that uh, elders... Uh, are put in place um, by a, a whole series of criteria, if you like, qualifications. Firstly, character. In fact, the Bible speaks mostly about character when it comes to eldership. Secondly, about uh, calling. Is there a sense of calling on this person's life to be an elder? Thirdly, competency. We look at the skills of people and look at the team and, and look at where God is perhaps moving people. And then fourthly, chemistry. Do these people get on? Do they have the same kind of sense of same heart and vision and moving forward? In terms of who decides who is going to be new elders, uh, we believe that the current eldership who are sitting, current eldership, okay, that they're the people that prayerfully consider who should be elders. And then we present the names to you as a church, and you know where I'm going this morning. And then we ask you a vision night to affirm the decision that we have made under God. And if you're a member of the church, and if you're not a member, okay, you can be, and it's really important because this is the only thing we do as a church where, where it's only members that can participate in this bit. So you can all come to the vision night, not a problem, but when we do this bit, it's only members that can do that. So if you're not sure you are a member, come and talk to us, or talk to Rachel or to Liz, and we'll make sure that you are. So we've been praying and looking and thinking, I want to present two people to you this morning who we believe God wants to be elders in this church, and you'll see their photographs. It's Ruth Bradshaw and Matt Fung. Now let me just say a little bit about Ruth. Ruth uh, is married to Will, and uh, she's been in this church over 20 years. They have two little girls. She's a social worker. She's got a real heart for mission along with Simon. She's going to be leading a team to Albania in the summer. Matt is new to the church. He's married to Sarah, who's been a part of this church for a long time. Matt's in public health, and... um, uh, He's just returned from mission, just returned from the trip to Zambia. And we see eldership in both of these individuals. And we really believe together, 
100% that these guys, this guy and girl would be great to join our eldership team. And we want you to affirm that decision in a few weeks' time. Now, you might have some questions. One of your questions might be, well, I don't know them. I don't know either of those guys. Well, that's all right. We do. <laughs> And that's why we want to ask you to trust us. Because as this church grows, you're not going to know all the people that are going to come into different positions of leadership. But that's where hopefully you'll trust us that we, over a long time, have prayerfully considered and weighed this up. And we're all in one heart and one mind. You might also ask a question, isn't Matt a bit young? <laughs> well, yeah, he is. But I wanted to say a few things about this. You see, we've been watching Matt for a while uh, when he doesn't know that. And we've prayed and watched And we believe that there is a gift of eldership in Matt. But you know, sometimes a gift in a person isn't fully formed. Sometimes it's in seed form. Sometimes it's in sapling form. Sometimes we do see it fully grown. And we see that gift of eldership in Matt. It's in seed and sapling form. But we want to create an environment where we can see that gift grow and develop until it's fully formed. And can I just say, just as as an aside really, do you know the last person that we brought onto the eldership in their 20s. Do you know who that last person was? Me. I was the last person that we brought onto the eldership in their 20s. I have to say, we've missed something over these last few years in that. And we really want to ask you to pray, pray for them. Please pray for Ruth and Matt. Pray for us as they join our team. And please affirm that decision with us on July the 10th. Is that okay? Because we just believe that we see God's work, hand at work in both of these individuals and we're very excited about that. Okay, so back to David. So he gets anointed uh, to be the king because God saw something in this man's heart. And before I look at that with you in the last few minutes I've got, just know who didn't see it. The man of God didn't see it. The brothers didn't see it. His own father didn't see it. Huh. Isn't that interesting? The man of God didn't see it, the authority figure. The the brothers, the family, the people that knew him well, they didn't see it. The father didn't see it, but God saw it. It may be that even this morning that you know what it is that nobody's seen what God's doing in your life. That you feel that nobody sees it, but God sees it. And God affirms it. And that's what happens in in David's experience. What did God see in this young man's heart? The Bible says in Proverbs 27, verse 19, As water reflects a man's face, so a man's heart reflects the man. As water reflects a man's face, so a man's heart reflects the man. So how many of you want a heart after God? Well, these are the three things I think, initially, that that, that God... God saw in the heart of David. There were lots of others that were built, but he saw these three things. Number one, a spirituality, a sensitivity to the things of God. And we see that in, in, each, in people, you know, and, and that's one of the things I'm always looking for. Is this person sensitive to the things of God, you know? And, and it says in the book of Acts about David that he was a man, and God said, who will do everything I asked him to do? Wouldn't that be amazing? I'd love God to say that about me. He'll do everything I want him to do. So there was a spirituality. Secondly, there was a humility. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves than we should, but it's certainly not thinking more of ourselves than we should. It's thinking of ourselves a little less, completely. And it's knowing our relationship to God, and it's knowing who God is and who we are in connection to Him. And David had that humility. Thirdly, David had an integrity. The Hebrew word for integrity means complete, whole, or sound. It's it's what Dave Jones was saying on that video, that you're the same Sunday that you are the rest of the week. That you are who you are when no one's looking. The difference between reputation and character is reputation is what others think you are and tell you you are. But character is what you really are. 
So to be honest, however many people tell you you're fantastic, really don't matter a rip if you're not. Do you know what I mean? Because actually that's reputation, but character is what you really are. Now, how many of you would like spirituality, humility, and integrity? Wouldn't you? Anyone? Should I tell you how to get them? If you've got a pen, here's seven easy steps. Number one, no, they're not. These are the three things I see that actually built in David's heart these three things. And I tell you, you are not going to be queuing up for these. Number one, solitude. That's what built it. When he was on his own with God and the sheep, okay, that's what built it. It was his relationship with Jesus away from the stage that built his heart for God. It's in the little things and the lonely places that we prove ourselves capable of the big things. And before we get excited about David and Goliath next week, which we will do, you know, the big giant, you have to remember that that wasn't the first battle David fought because he killed a lion and a bear. And some of the biggest battles you and I will ever face in our spiritual lives aren't the public ones, they're the private ones. They're the ones in here, aren't they? (laughs) You know, the last couple of weeks, there's... Like probably day three, day four when Alison was away and I was on my own in the house and it's like, ah. Well, all of a sudden there was that kind of like, you know, some like dark thoughts kind of coming into my heart and my mind. Do you know what I mean? Thinking, oh, I've got to fight this. You know, where's this come from? And it's all quiet and all of a sudden in that privacy of your own space, some stuff comes up. Those are the biggest battles that you've got to fight, the private ones, not the public ones. And in that solitude, when it's him and God, there's a heart, the heart for God being developed. So solitude, number two, this is a killer as well, obscurity. How many of you want some obscurity? That's what David had. You see, David will go center stage, and we'll see that next week, but right now he's obscure. And when he goes to center stage, after that, he goes to even more obscurity as well. And David developed a heart for God through not being on the stage, but through living his life before an audience of one. And that's how you build a heart for God. And thirdly, monotony. Who loves monotony? (laughs) Not many of you. You see, most of life will be filed under the category, not much happened. All right? I just want to be real with you. There are going to be the David and Goliath moments. There are going to be the Elijah on top of Mount Carmel moments. But Elijah had one Carmel moment. David had one Goliath moment. Much of David's life was filed under the category of looked after sheep. Did monotonous things, did my job, served God, did it well, made right choices, forgave people who hurt me, looked after my body, looked after my soul, looked after my spirit. All that stuff is what develops a heart for God. It's monotony of living life. A pilot said, flying is nothing more than hours and hours of monotony punctuated by a few seconds of sheer panic. (laughs) A guy called Alan Redpath, who's dead now, but he's, he's a Christian writer. He said, The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And you know, God can do things instantly, and he does. But where God builds character and a heart after God, that comes through life. Not through power encounters, not through three easy steps, not through one special key that only I know, none of that stuff. It comes through living life, making choices on a daily basis that you're going to honor God. The way you handle your finances, the way you deal with your relationships, the way that you deal with your thought life, the way you deal with your sexuality, the way you deal with brothers and sisters who hurt you and who you hurt, all that stuff is where we build character. That's where we build God's heart, isn't it? It comes through solitude, obscurity, 
and monotony. <laughs> it's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> and so, when David is then chosen and anointed, you think, right, next stop, king clothes. Do you know what I mean? Go down to the, to the mall and get some king clothes. That doesn't happen. What David does then is he goes into service. And he actually ends up serving the king who's been rejected. The anointed king is now serving the king who's been rejected. And over the next kind of couple of years in his life, not of us talking, next couple of years, you'll see how that plays out. How this man with a heart after God humbled himself, learned how to forgive, learned how to battle through loss, through pain and through grief, because he had a heart after God. I want that, don't you? I want that. Why don't we pray? I want to ask you a question this morning. How's your heart? How's your heart? And I want you just to to ask yourself this. And let, Let me change a couple of the words in this sentence. The condition of my heart will determine the spiritual quality of my life. So if that's true, the condition of my heart will determine the spiritual quality of my life. My question to you, okay, this is like a diagnostic question. How's your heart? How's your heart? Is it soft? Is it open? Is it beating? Is it passionate? Is it hard? Is it bitter? Is it unforgiving? Is it hurt? It's going to be probably a mixture of all those things. But if you want a heart after God, I want to invite you today, the start of our series, to do three things really. I want to invite you to say, Lord, search me. Over the next six weeks, examine my heart. And then, and then I want to say, say to God, and God, would you touch my heart as well? Would you touch my heart in areas that I need you to touch it in? But not only touch it, Lord, would you also change my heart so that in five, six weeks time, that actually as I look back, I can see how my heart is changing because you're touching it as you examine it by your spirit. So if you'd like to join me in that prayer over the next six weeks, I'd like you to stand with me. And I want to pray for us this morning. Just as a symbol, as a way of saying, I want to be open. And you don't have to do this, but I find it quite helpful myself just to put my hands out like that, just to say, just because in my physical body, then again, metaphors and, you know, what we see in the natural and the spiritual, I'm saying, Lord, I want to be open to you. My hands are open. And so God, I want to pray for me and I want to pray for us that, Lord, that we would have open hearts, just as we've got open hands now. We'd have open hearts over these next few weeks. And Lord, we're inviting you to examine our hearts. We're asking you to touch our hearts. And we're really believing that you would change our hearts as well. So Lord, would you come by your spirit? Would you lead us? Would you open us up? Would you examine us? Lord, that verse we said at the start of the year, break up your unplowed ground. That's what we wanted. That's our heart. That's the soil. No good having a great sower. No good having amazing seed if the soil is not ready. And we say, Lord, together, we want our soil, the soil of our hearts, to be ready for the seed of your word. That when you place the seed in, it will bring fruit. Because our hearts are ready. In Jesus' name we pray.